Welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm Dr. Nadia Mohandasi, the Program Manager for the Corps' Emergency Management Continuous Improvement Program, or MSIP, and we have another emergency management-focused episode of the podcast for you today. We're specifically going to be looking at the historic flooding on the Missouri River back in 2019 and where we are with the equally historic recovery operations today, three years later. So I know in our past EM episodes, we've discussed some of our other civil disaster response operations and missions we can perform in support of FEMA under the National Response Framework. Uh, For example, our debris mission and uh, maybe you heard the Operation Blue Roof episode. But today we're going to switch gears and focus on one of the emergency operations capabilities we have under our own authority through Public Law 8499, or PL 8499, to help community recovery after floods and coastal storm events. And PL 8499, uh, Emergency Response to Natural Disasters, is actually the Corps' primary, basic, and most wide-reaching authority to provide for emergency activities in support of state and local governments prior to, during, and after a flood or coastal storm event. So with that quick explainer out of the way, let's get to introductions. We have with us today Matt Kratzke, and Matt is currently part of our Emergency Support Function 3, or ESF3 permanent cadre, but back in 2019, you were sitting in a different seat, right, Matt? So what were you doing back then? Yeah, back in 2019, I was the emergency manager in the Omaha district, which is when the historic floods of 2019 came down the Missouri River, and uh, I earned my infamous nickname of the Billion Dollar Man in the Corps of Engineers Emergency (laughs) Management Circles. Right, right. That's right. And, you know, I think it's so interesting because whereas hurricanes are kind of loud and in your face about some of the emergency response and recovery operations that USAIS can provide in support to FEMA, we actually have a huge authority directly under our own organization uh, called Public Law 8499. And that is how we respond to flood and coastal emergencies. And it's really kind of a far and wide reaching authority that we actually do most of our emergency operations and emergency management work under. So I thought it would be an interesting take to kind of look through that lens as we look back at the historic 2019 flooding, especially since we have some big milestones coming up. So before we get to those milestones, why don't we just set this up for folks who might not have lived through this event as closely as you did? You know, what what happened? Like, where did this uh, flood event start? Kind of what were those conditions like? Okay, yeah, great question. And really an interesting story. So every year, you know, the Corps of Engineers through headquarters goes and briefs headquarters and the MSCs on what your flood risks look like for any time of the year. And uh, I had briefed out at that time that our flood risk was very low in the Omaha district, and I actually anticipated nothing, no flooding at all. Um, And then as we were doing our flood fight training in the Omaha district, which we do annually, regardless of what the flood outlook looks like, right, I remember the National Weather Service was there participating with us, and uh, he came out and he had to run back to his Weather Service office to do a brief, and he he told me flat out, if I was not concerned about the storm that was coming, I should be. And the next day is when the bomb cyclone occurred, which there was a very distinct rain snow line over central Nebraska. So we had snow west of that line in the Sand Hills and in the Platte River Valley, and east of that line, it 
poured down rain hard. And so we had a rain on snow event, which is about the worst kind of event you can have because you have all kinds of runoff and then melt behind it and everything comes down the river. And historically, the Platte River has flooded from north of the six main stem dams on the Missouri River. This was unique that the majority of the flooding occurred south of Omaha on the Platte River. And um, the Platte River is an uncontrolled tributary to the Missouri River, which at that time of year typically carries 5,000 CFS. Um, But with a bomb cyclone when it hit, there was 200,000 CFS came out of the Platte River. And when the Platte River meets the Missouri, it takes a right turn and heads south towards Kansas into Missouri and heads on down to the Mississippi River. Well, with that much flow, it didn't turn at all. It just went straight east and started cutting through our levees. And it actually went east to I-29, Interstate 29 runs south through Nebraska, Iowa, and and, uh, Missouri. Um, And it went straight east to I-29, over I-29, and flooded the entire Missouri River Valley as far down as uh, into Missouri. It was ridiculous. And we had damage to, um, I think, 153 miles of levees were damaged in that event. Wow. So uh, so never a good thing when your weather guy runs out in a panic in the middle of a meeting or a workshop, huh? Uh, I can't imagine what that must have been like. But for folks who maybe have not lived through a flood event themselves or maybe, you know, in areas that are more used to flash floods, you know, something very quick and localized. What was the scope of this flood event for y'all? I mean, was it the span of a couple of hours or were we talking days and weeks? It was days and weeks. What occurred was once the water got behind the levees, then that flood water sat there. There was 12 or 14 feet of water in the valley, and it sat there for a long time because it has to drain out. And so you had the initial flood surge and the filling of the bowl right in the valley. And then you had a follow-on flood as the water figured out how it could cut back through the levees again on the downstream end and get back into the main channel. And then, of course, you have more water than the main channel can carry. So it's like pulling the stopper out of a bathtub, and it just takes a while for it to all drain out. And so when you have something that is thousands of square miles wide, it just takes a long time for it to drain out. Um, And the only way we could actually assess the damage for weeks and weeks was that we had a helicopter contractor. And so we actually flew levy assessment teams every day up and down the levees all day, every day. And we'd have the same people go out every day so that they could make notes so we could check how the water was draining and see which levees were damaged and that kind of thing. So that was the only way for several weeks that we could even assess the damage and the extent of the flood. Wow. So when the floodwaters receded and you were able to do those full assessments and really take a look at the damage that was left behind, I know I saw some pictures, but I'm sure that didn't do it justice because it just looked catastrophic. Like, what did that level of damage really look like? What was the scope? Yeah, it was it was really interesting. So where there were interesting in an engineering weird way, right? Where there were cornfields, right, and super abundant and great farmland was just covered with up to 10 feet of sand that had come out of the Platte River. There was just, there was sand everywhere and any buildings or any structures that were in the way were just devastated. They were just level. There was a grain elevator in um, one area and they, they had some 
it's unique because they had some on-ground storage, and um, it flooded around the storage area, and of course nobody could get to it. And the grain sat there, and of course it got wet, and then it started to ferment and mold, and it actually caught on fire. But you couldn't go put out the fire. So there was this pile of corn in the middle of the flood that was burning. So there was just all these unique and different things. It picked up sections of I-29 and they were just gone. The county roads were obliterated, you know, and then there were state highways that just had huge chunks just missing. So travel in and around the area was tough at best. And those those farm fields finally came back uh, just last year was the first really good crop they got out of those farm fields again. So it just took, there was so much sand and so much devastation and so, so much debris and, and different things in those areas that it just took that long to clean all of that up. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Now I'm rambling. No, no. I mean, it's so, like you said, interesting in a weird way, right? In a just an engineering way. But it just for somebody on the outside like me, I didn't l- live through it, you know, in that area. It just sounds almost like end times kind of things, you know, just flaming corn in the middle of floodwaters <laughs> and, you know, roads washed and just absolute devastation. But then we have to recover, right? And that's part of our our jobs, helping communities recover. And I know you alluded to being the billion-dollar man earlier in our discussion, but one of the things the Corps can come in and do under Public Law 8499 or PL 8499 is rehabilitation of, uh, of certain levy systems, right? So can you kind of walk us through what that looks like, and then we'll take the conversation into what it looked like for this event? Sure, yeah. So when you go into a... Uh rehabilitation, a typical levy rehab. You do your preliminary investigation, your PIR report, preliminary investigation report. You come up with the cost estimate. You submit that to headquarters for funding. And you you walk through the PIR to make sure that everything is eligible under the public law 8499. And once you get all that squared away, which includes your environmental compliance and all the things you might have to do along the way, regulatory compliance, all those kinds of things. And once you walk through all that, then you submit that through the MSC up to hire headquarters to get funding. And then that comes back down. And then we hire a contractor and we go out and we do the rehabilitation to whatever levy, whatever the damage is on a levy or the flood control work. It doesn't necessarily have to be a levy. It can be a portion of a levy or or some pertinent structure like a gate well or something. And that's a typical project. Right. And so what we're really trying to do, we as the Corps, is repair levees or other flood control projects back to their original design elevation or, or whatever it was in the original specs, correct? Right. We're trying to put things back to what the original intent was when Congress authorized the project. So, and that's typically on a levy, it's typically to a certain elevation. Now we can make changes to the section or to certain structures to bring them up to current engineering practice, but we have to stay within the confines of the original intent of the project. Okay, so I can only imagine what that must have looked like or must be like for, you know, a smaller section of a levy. But you said that the Corps and Omaha District was actually dealing with hundreds of miles of damaged and destroyed levees that needed rehabilitation and repair. So how do you even get your arms around something like that? Yeah, that's actually a great question. And what happens, and I, 
we had lived through this before, the 2011 flood and the 93 flood. We, we had lived through this before, and so we, we had jumped through the hoops. So we knew kind of what to expect. But still, while the floodwaters are still coming up or nearing their peak, then all of a sudden you have headquarters asking for an estimate for damages and what that estimate might look like so that they can start to work on a supplemental funding request. And so for 2019, of course, we had damages to levies in, um, I believe, four states, South Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri. So we had damages in all those states. And what we did was of course, the floodwaters are still up, so we couldn't physically go out and assess them. But as I mentioned earlier, we were flying around in a helicopter, so we knew where the water was. So we just made the grand assumption that everything was damaged because everything got overtopped. And so based on that, we took historical data and came up with a per-mile cost. And our initial estimates were ridiculously large because we couldn't see it. So we were coming up with a big uh, rough order of magnitude estimate. And so initially, we were in the six to ten billion dollar range, knowing that it would go down as we could actually look at things and assess them. But um, so that's what we did is we just assumed that everything was damaged and we would have to rebuild everything because in the you know with the lack of information, we just made a very very conservative estimate initially and then toned it down. And I think our final estimate, after we could get out and touch things and look around, our final estimate was right around $1 billion, $1.2 billion, something like that. So then how do you actually go from estimates and funding requests and supplementals to executing the work? You know, what did that look like? How did that get started and sort of walk us through that process? Yeah, we we did some unique contracting things with the 2019 flood rehabilitation effort. Of course, the goal of the PL8499 program is to try to get everything repaired so that in the next flood season, you know, everything is protected again. I mean, that's the overarching unwritten goal, right, is we want people, because we're trying to help the people behind the levees recover, right? That's what we do as emergency managers, whether it's 8499 or Stafford Act or whatever, but we want to help the local folks recover. That's why we're there. And so knowing the amount of work that we had to do and then looking at that and saying, okay, is there any way that we can speed up our contracting process, which is always a little bit cumbersome, you know, and how can we get out ahead of that process knowing that we had a billion plus dollars worth of work. So one thing we did is we worked very closely with our contracting office and we had contractor pre-award meetings with, we just put out a mass call to contractors and said, hey, we're going to talk about what we think we're going to have out in the Missouri River Basin for work. And you can attend or not, but here's all the information. And um, we're going to create a pre-qualified bidder list and so that we can get out ahead of the work, right, and do things a little bit quicker. And we did do that. And we had well over 100 contractors showed up and subcontractors. And so we spent the better part of one afternoon just discussing what we thought we might see when the waters receded. And then contracting worked with all those folks to get a pre-qualified bidder list together so that when we were awarding contracts, we knew capacity and all these things with all these different contractors. And we cleared all that with our contracting office clear up into headquarters. So that was one thing we did to expedite things. Um, And then once it did go down, then we had the prioritization of work, right? Which is 
really difficult when you're talking about that long of a stretch of river. And what you have to do, I mean, I alluded before that the water got over into the valley and then it had to drain out like a bathtub, right? So what we had to do was we had to go to each levee system and plug the breaches in the upper end, but leave the breaches in the lower end open so that the water behind it could drain out. And we plugged the upper end so no more water could come in. So we learned a whole bunch about how to plug uh, holes in levees while there's still water on them. Um, We had one that was over a thousand feet wide, and I think the scour hole was 70, 80 feet deep. So we started to go through it and decided that wasn't probably the best option, right? So then we started working back around it. And so we started prioritizing work that way. So Right. So to get out ahead of things, though, like I said, we worked with the contractors out front, which is something that typically we don't do that. Right. We put it out on the street for bid and, you know, we do our thing. But we we worked with contractors up front. So we had a pre-qualified list. So we knew exactly who we were going to send the bids to, which was on that list. Right. No favorites, but we followed the list and then we prioritized the work. And then we made sure that one contractor didn't have all the work because we wanted simultaneous projects ongoing. It was a huge effort. The Omaha district, we actually stood up a new temporary branch in project management just to do the rehabilitation program. So I acted as the, I guess it would be like the owner because I was the 8499 point of contact. And then there was this entire branch underneath that was working for the emergency management office doing the rehabilitations. It was a huge effort. We had over 100 people working just on the levy rehabs at one time. Wow. So, I mean, that's so interesting. And, you know, two things strike me about that. So the first is the absolute necessity of really looking at events like this from a watershed perspective, you know, not a single levy to levy. You were talking about having to plug holes uh, upstream to make sure downstream could still drain out. And I think that's something a lot of people maybe don't see because it's one of those see the forest for the trees kind of thing. When you're looking at one single levy, you know, there's a broader picture. Yeah. Um, and, you know, another thing, we, we had a lot of public meetings and sponsor or stakeholder engagement meetings um, to explain what we were doing, what our priorities were, and making sure that that our priorities met the sponsor's desires, right? Because at the end of the day, when we're all done putting the levees back together and we get them all rehabbed, there is a sponsor and they maintain it, right? They do all the operation and maintenance of the levy. So they have to buy into our plan. And further, right, they know best where drainage areas might be through farm fields or or whatever, right? So they know best where all those things are. And so we coordinated a lot through public meetings and stakeholder involvement and all those kind of things, right? So that we had buy-in from the public because when it it looks funny when you're fixing a levee and all of a sudden you're plugging a hole here and then you just leave the levee with a giant hole in the bottom of it for months, you go away, right? But you're letting the water run out. And the sponsors knew that, right? And the public knew that because we had had these meetings. We also were super, super engaged with our PAO office and the local media. I don't know how many times TV interviews I did and how many newspaper interviews, right? Um, I, I actually was on, I think I was on a, a nightline or something one night. <laughs> and uh, anyway, that was, that was really interesting. They wanted me to talk about global warming. I'm like, no, no, no. 
<laughs> anyway, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So we kept the media super engaged too, so that further right, the public knew what we were doing. Um, not just the sponsors, not just the people that live right next to the levy, but everybody in the entire area knew what we were trying to accomplish and how we were going about it. Yeah, and that's that's the second thing that struck me from this whole conversation is just the sheer magnitude of coordination and communication every which way, right? Up, down, across with our internal folks at the district level, with headquarters, with the media, like you were talking about, stakeholders, public. I mean, just what a massive effort that must have been in addition to executing all of this work. Yeah, it was it was really interesting and it was hard. It was challenging. It was rewarding. And, you know, something else that occurred, you know, we have all these magical district boundaries, right? So the Omaha district ends right around Rulo, Nebraska, which is and then Kansas City district takes over. So there's a giant wall where the water stops, right? (laughs) I'm not sure that's how water works. No, right? It keeps going. So we ended up, I talked to the Kansas City EM chief a lot, Judd Kenevan. Judd and I did a lot of coordination. And another super unique thing that came out of it, they were calling them the four governor meetings. And so um, the governor of Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, and Missouri were having meetings. I think they started monthly and then they made them quarterly. I, I can't remember the schedule exactly, but the four governors would come into a central location and sit with folks from the Kansas City District and folks from the Omaha District and talk about flood recovery and how we could change and how we could move things um, in the future so this didn't occur at this magnitude again. It was really a, a grassroots thing so those governors could carry that to the federal level and, and Congress. It was really unique in that regard. There was also a couple congressional hearings that were held out in small rural America, you know, several congressmen came out and they would have hearings. And and so General Spellman came out several times and different folks, you know, um, would sit out and and we'd talk to the senators too. So there was a lot of of moving parts going on and a lot of coordination. Yeah. So let's fast forward a little bit because one of the reasons, you know, we wanted to talk through this event was that we're coming up on some pretty significant milestones, uh, hopefully within calendar year 2022. And as I understand it, some of that rehab work is coming to a completion. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So of course, I've been in this job for a year, but I've still been in touch with the, the folks still working on the levees there. And everything, all the levees have been closed, and they're nearing completion of all the work. It should all be completed this year, which is actually, that is a huge accomplishment, knowing where we started at, you know, in the middle of 2019 or late 2019 when we actually started. It was getting on to November and December, I think, when we actually started construction. So you think, you know, really it was closer to maybe two, two and a half years that they did all this work. So um, it should all be completed this year, which is a huge accomplishment and a, and a huge success for the Omaha District and the Corps of Engineers as a whole, that um, it just proves once again how we can come together as an organization and aid the country when they're at their, you know, they're having their worst day. And we can come in there and we can help folks recover and get back to their, their life that they know. Yeah, and and um, I, that's a perfect kind of segue to closing this conversation out because I've known Matt for a, a while now, and you've been kicking around emergency management for quite a while as well. And I think one of the things folks who might not work in emergency management every day don't realize is just the absolute 
personal satisfaction and joy that most of us get when we really see the tangible benefits of, of some of our work and our help. And so I can't imagine what it must feel like for you to have lived through that event personally, been affected by that event personally, got all of that work coordinated, going, executed, and now to be sitting on the other side of it and seeing, you know, those communities, your community recover, that just must be amazing for you. Yeah, um, it is. It's a great feeling. And and um, and again, right, I, I don't do this. I've never done, I've, you say I've been kicking around emergency management for a while. My first flood fight, don't, I'm, I'm aging myself a little bit, but my first flood fight was 1993. Um, I was out on a levee kicking around, right, <laughs> doing, doing surveillance and, and helping sponsors throw sandbags and all kinds of crazy stuff, right? And so I've been doing this for a hot minute. And um, I've never, and I, and this goes for the majority of people, I say me, but the majority of people that do this, we don't do this for ourselves. We never have. I go out and I do this because I want to help people. And this is one of the ways in the Corps of Engineers, I've always believed this, that this is one area in the Corps of Engineers where you can go out and directly touch people and directly have an impact on somebody's life and see those results. It's not a 20-year study that, you know, takes your entire career and then the next guy's career will be building the results of that 20-year study. This is go out and in 30 days, I'm going to rehab your levy or whatever it is. And you help those people and you can see that and it's tangible. And people appreciate that when you're out there. And I, and I think the people that do this kind of work recognize that and understand it, which is why they keep coming back, regardless of how hard the work is. Yeah, I could. I just could not agree with you more, Matt. And I can't even top that. That's a perfect closer. So uh, I just just wanted to say thank you again um, for joining us today on this edition of Inside the Castle. We really appreciate you and your insights. And to our listeners, we want to hear from you, what topics are important to you, and people you're interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. Be revolutionary.